that first connection, which is the hardest, you can then use that to expand your business. So I think that working hard and finding that connection will be important, particularly if you do not speak great Japanese yourself. Just having that will reassure slightly more traditional clients and clients who don't speak English of your intentions and honorability and trustworthiness. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Bugelman. This podcast is made for those who want to develop or strengthen the communication skills, cultural savvy, insights into current trends and conditions, and mindsets that are essential in a Japanese business environment. The helpful, practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in depth cultural context needed to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. In today's episode of the Business Success Japan podcast, I'm excited to share a conversation that I had with Chiara Terzuolo. Chiara is a polyglot musician, narrator, writer, editor, and actor who has been living and working creatively in Tokyo since 2011. She has successfully established herself as an independent freelancer who has amassed a unique portfolio style career that is well off the beaten path for the stereotypical office worker in Japan. She has a lot of insights to share for people who are hoping to establish themselves in entertainment, freelance work, or who just need a leg up on communicating effectively with Japanese clients. So be sure to stick around to learn more. Hi, so my name is Chiara.、Uh, I live in Tokyo and I've been here since 2011. When everybody else was running away, I came back. So, I do a whole bunch of things. I am a singer, a narrator, a writer, a consultant.、Um, I've worked in the travel industry、uh, during the big travel boom here in Japan. And yeah, it's a, it's a cool place to live. Great. So, what is your history with Japan? What brought you to the country? Well, I'd been here a few times before as a student and then as a, the recipient of a Fulbright fellowship. And I really enjoyed my time here. And I had sort of learned to play the koto first through an internship when I was a student and then through the Fulbright Fellowship.、Um, and I wanted to continue doing that. But of course, you know, I like to also eat on a daily basis. So I had to get a job. So I managed miraculously to get a job here. And it's a、uh, history, <laughs> as it were. So, was there anything in particular that made you want to live in Japan? Some people are happy to just have it as a travel destination, but what made you want to actually settle down in the country? That's an interesting question. Well, one of the things was the musical aspect. The best teachers of koto are in Japan and specifically in Tokyo. So, coming back for that was one thing. I'd really enjoyed my time here. A lot of How it works societally, I think, is works for me. You know, it's relatively quiet and not super confrontational, and that's kind of nice. It also has really good healthcare, which,、uh, coming from the States, is also very, very nice. And also, on a very practical level, I started learning Japanese in my second year of university and got pretty good, and I wanted to use that. And so, yeah, it was kind of a conglomeration of things. It's, it's a relatively safe place. And it's beautiful, and the food is awesome. 
and it has a pretty low cost of living compared to like other big cities. I'm always terrified when I see how much it costs to live in like San Francisco or New York. Oh my God. So yeah, there's, there's a lot going for it. And then when I got here the second time, I met my partner who is Japanese. And well, yes, that's another big point for staying here, at least at the moment. So could you tell us a little bit more specifically about what you do for work? It might help if I go back because I don't want people to think that I've been able to do all of this uh, from the very start because it definitely did not happen that way. But so I was a music major uh, in university and in grad school. And so, of course, I wanted to do the koto thing. I'm also a singer. I was like, okay, I'd like to do that. But of course, getting a visa to do that here is, you know, unless you're incredibly amazing, world famous, blah, not going to happen. So I got myself a regular job. I'm selling MBAs, which I don't have. I do not have an MBA. I've never done an MBA, but I was selling MBAs basically uh, for the first few years I was here. And then I switched to a few other little companies. Probably the longest was with a travel company, sort of an online book activity booking company. And then I was briefly editor-in-chief of a website about Japan. And because I have this background, this allows me to do the tourism and sort of inbound consulting, which I really do enjoy. Um, it's very nice because, you know, singing work and narration work goes up and down and that's pretty stable. So it's nice to be able to pay rent all the time. Um, and you go places and it's awesome. But that was, you know, lots of years of work on that. And my first job when I was here didn't pay great. So I started writing on the side to get a little bit more income. And so I've been doing that now since again, 2011. So I've been lots of places, written a lot of stuff. And so I can offer the service of consulting and also creating content all at once, which is nice and very good for my obsessive a type personality thing where I want to control all the things. So that's fantastic. Um, I don't have that many clients. I don't take that many because I want to ensure quality. And also it's, you know, it's not my main thing anymore. So um, if I really like the client, I'll do it. If I don't, I run away screaming. And so I do that and I do write. So for the, I, I do love to write newspapers. So mainly the Japan times, uh, occasionally other things here and there. And Throughout all of this, I was singing and performing in body block. And then COVID showed up. And I was like, oh, darn, there goes that. Um, and a friend of mine said, why don't you try narration? I'm like, okay. Like expecting nothing to happen from this because it is competitive. But yeah, it's actually turned out to be quite a nice little thing during this weird period. And I really do enjoy it. It's uh, it's a lot easier in a way than music, but it's still vocal work and uh, you get to see all sorts of things. So that's been really, really fun. And so um, this kind of portfolio style of life, I guess, that I have now doing various bits and pieces of things, it personally suits me much better than what I was doing before, trying to, you know, have a basically full-time job in Japan, which is much more than a full-time job, along with keeping music stuff going. This allows me, you know, to really organize my time as I like it and to not have to get up at seven in the morning, which was the worst part of working for a company ever. So yeah, so that's sort of my um, trajectory to get to this point. Thanks for going back to explain that to us. It's very helpful. So building up to the career portfolio that you have now, 
would you say that your approach was more intentional in terms of figuring out where you wanted to go or were you more just open to opportunities as they arose and taking advantage of them? I think at the very start, it was just kind of being open to opportunities and it was more trying to get into a job that I didn't dislike at least. Cause like the first couple I had were, I mean, the very first one, not that awful, but not my thing. Um, and so like travel, travel is something I love and have done lots of. So it's like, okay, like this at least is also a fulfilling sort of day job as it were. And then from there, it started to become much more intentional. It's like, okay, it's like, if I'm going to live here, this means I will have to work in the Japanese company framework. And I do not like it because it's just, you know, there's, there's so many meetings. Oh my God, so many meetings. And you have to be in the office. This is all pre-COVID now that, you know, companies have been forced into the 21st century. I think it's gotten a bit better for remote work, but like it was still a rarity. And um, yeah, so it became much more intentional to be like, okay, how can I sort of start eventually working for myself so that I can do more of the things I really enjoy doing, but also keep these other sort of streams of income coming in because I really do enjoy the travel writing and the consulting and stuff like that as well. And so sort of it's like, okay, I'm working at the travel company and that's one side of the business that's sort of travel. It's the um, sort of the money-making part of it. And then I was like, oh, but also this writing thing is something I really do enjoy. And like, so I should probably look at the media side as well. And was lucky enough to get an introduction to work for this website and get that sort of aspect of it as well. And then I was like, okay, now I have these two various things. Um, I've worked with a whole series of places. I've seen what the main issues are in lots of different places. I think I can go solo uh, because I had sort of been freelancing with other places here and there and had at least one majorish client. I was like, okay. Well, worst comes to worst, I can pay rent and buy some tofu and we're good. You know, it, it won't be a great year. It'll take time to get new clients and blah, blah, blah. Or so I thought. Um, but as soon as I quit all of the companies that I couldn't work with before because I was, you know, working full time somewhere else, we're like, hi, can we do stuff with you? It's like, yes, that's great. So I actually got so much more work that I could actually really deal with. So the first year was really hard in the fact that it was just like too much happening. Um, and I've since kind of managed to work that out again, but yeah, it's definitely the creating a network and a brand here is very, very important. And having that background that shows that you actually know what you're talking about. And this is a little bit of an issue in the inbound tourism area in Japan, because there are a lot of people who do it, but they don't actually have that much experience with it. They are native speakers of whatever language it is, that people are trying to get visitors from. And that's about it. And so that's kind of, I thought, okay, well, I have a difference here. I can do something different. Uh, let's give it a try. If it doesn't work, okay, it doesn't work. I will probably not die. And yeah, and it's worked out, which has been really nice and a bit of a surprise to me too. <laughs> How do you go about creating a specific brand that appeals to so many people and also maintain a network? Maybe they overlap more than I imagine, but how does that work for you? 
some extent. The writing-related stuff and the tourism-related stuff do, and editing and that kind of stuff do overlap quite a bit. And then narration occasionally. There's a lot of, you know, travel-related narration stuff. And so those kind of work together. And it's a little bit by word of mouth, to be honest. I had one pretty large client and they then referred me because they saw somebody else saw the work and was like, oh, that's, we really like that. Did you do that? Who did you work with? And they were kind enough to refer. I don't think all companies do that. This one in particular is not Japanese led. So that might have something to do with it. And it was also a case I did keep in contact with some of the companies that I had worked and associations I'd worked with before uh, through other things as well, leaving a decent amount of time. So it's not like I'm poaching people's clients. Often I'm doing just a small part of something. Um, so it doesn't really even impact the companies that I used to work for. And it's just like showing quality, which as former editor-in-chief of something, I can say it's actually, there's some really bad quality work out there um, that gets through because clients don't understand English as much as they would need to, to be able to pick up on it. And so just by trying to be really good and on time and clear with communication and speaking good formal Japanese uh, has really kind of allowed me to make a name myself for myself sounds awfully like self-centered, but to, to be known as somebody that can be trusted for this kind of job. And other things I get through, again, I work with the Japan Times. And so sometimes that's pure journalism, but they also get ads. And they know that if I say I will deliver something on time, it will be delivered absolutely on time. And so they're very kindly asked me if I want to do those things. So it just kind of trickles in. Like if you show your worth, then it's, you know, it, it gets around as it were. There's not that many uh, people doing that, this type of job here. Like in a concentrated way. So, you know, we all know each other and all the various customers tend to start to know you if you show up in a positive or negative way. Yes, definitely be mindful of your reputation because it will get around. Oh, yes. So narration is a area that I have not heard much about actually mm. with how it has to do with foreigners working in Japan. Is mm. there anything that you can share with us about how you find that work, how you make sure that you perform it well, and is it a sustainable career choice for foreigners in Japan? So for some people, it definitely is. I know some people who just really do narration. There's a few very famous folks who do that, and they've done it for quite a while. So it's not, you're usually not going to be a success on it overnight. I'm certainly not famous, anyway near as famous as these folks who have like huge contracts. But Starting or at least getting trying to start it is pretty darn simple. There's a lot of agencies that you register with. I mean, you need to make a demo tape. You should have some kind of voice that is likely to be commercial. So that is one thing. You kind of need to listen to things and you know, work on enunciation and clarity and putting emotion into voice. So this is very good for people. I know a lot of actors, for example, who do a lot of narration as well, because they have this ability to really put feeling into, you know, just like three words or something, which is 
pretty common for like, I don't know, a car commercial or something like that. So having some of that training is definitely helpful. Um, there's plenty of people who haven't. Uh, they just have a very, you know, specific voice, unusual voice and get jobs from that. So, you know, make a good demo tape. Um, it's, you know, either by yourself or go to a studio and get it done. Make sure you have a whole series of different examples of stuff. And then, yeah, just send it to every agency you can. And like the first jobs are not going to pay very much. I think my first job paid like ichiman ni yen, so like a hundred bucks or something. But uh, then you've done it. And so then you slowly, and again, it's another case of reputation um, because people often double book or they forget. Sometimes they don't show up or things like that. And agencies will remember that and won't send you emails anymore. So it's, you know, a case of being well organized and prompt and, you know, helpful. Often I find myself fixing English when I'm at these narration things because nobody has properly checked it and I can't physically allow it to go out in that form because it will annoy the hell out of me. So yeah, um, it's I, I found it relatively easy to start. It's become a nice little bonus. Um, I don't live exclusively off of it and nor do I think I would want to, but yeah, if you want to start trying, just just as well. <laughs> Nothing to lose, really. Maybe except for maybe like sixty bucks to make a a demo tape. Great. Thanks for sharing a little bit more about that. So, did you embark on this portfolio career before getting married to a Japanese national? Yes. yes. Okay. So, how did you cope with the visa situation at that time? At that time, I was still working sort of, I had a main company law kind of thing and just kind of renewing that myself for ages and ages and ages. And then currently I do have a spouse visa and now permanent residency. So they can't get rid of me. Ha! <laughs> the spousal visa, is there anything in particular that people should know about it? Is it a relatively open visa in terms of what you're allowed to do? Oh yeah. So the first thing that... Uh, you definitely need to know is if you're applying for a spousal visa, do not believe the stuff on the English language website because it is missing a whole bunch of stuff unless they've updated it recently, but I doubt it. Check the Japanese one and put in everything that is requested from the Japanese site. Uh, I learned that the hard way. So uh, that is one thing. As for activities, once you have a spousal visa, you can do whatever you want. You can stop working. You can continue working. You can do what I do and do all sorts of stuff. That's all fine. It is does take time to get. I think it took, God, at least half a year, if not more, to switch it. So if you're going to switch, start early. Uh, make sure you have at least a year or so left on your um, your regular visa or whatever visa you're on right now. And yeah, because if you and for people on like tourist visa or things like that, that's not going to work super. So you're going to have to do that from outside Japan, which is, again, a giant pain. But such is life. But yeah, I've had no real issues since. And uh Yeah. It's pretty boring. No, that's just one of those things that gets thrown out quite a bit, but we don't hear a lot of specific information of how it functions 
or what it takes to get it. So that's definitely you, great to know. You need to you need to provide a lot of information. Um, I I just think provide as much information as possible. I have always had issues with the immigration services here, just because I think that my last name makes me look sound. Uh, how can I put it? Not European or American. It's vaguely unusual. It sounds kind of odd. And so I've always had issues of only being able to renew visas for one year, one year, one year when people start getting three or five. So, uh, so I provided a ton of information, photos. They do ask for some. I gave like millions of photos in an extremely detailed essay about how we met and blah, 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 blah. And then I also provided, sh showed off how much money I make and then how much money my partner makes. So it's like, this is not a marriage of convenience. Like, I do not need this person to survive. In fact, if anything, they need me to survive. So like, just um, be as uh, proactive as possible. Also great advice, especially when dealing with any amount of bureaucracy. And it's only more true in Japan. And speaking of bureaucracy, is there anything that people should know when it comes to dealing with taxation as somebody who has a apart from standard career. An unusual, I mean, it is unusual <laughs> here. I will say that if you want to be sort of like a sole proprietorship, so just, you know, work for yourself freelance, that is extremely easy in Japan once you have a visa of some sort. So you can't, coming in as a freelancer, eh, not great. But once you've been here a while, I've had a few visas, at a certain point, as long as you make, I think it's somewhere around $2,000 to $2,500 a month through and can prove that you do that, you can self-sponsor your visa. So you do not need a spouse, uh, which is good. Um, I'm all for that. You know, getting the Kojin Jigyo, so this sole proprietorship, took me approximately like 30 minutes. It's really easy. For tax purposes, you are going to have to, you know, file them yourself, but there are some, as long as you speak Japanese, can read some Japanese, there's some fantastic little software things to conglomerate all your various expenses and incoming and outgoings and all of that. And just to spit out the magical little blue form, which is literally called the blue form at the end of the fiscal year. And that thing has been amazing. Um, it saves so much time. It's really easy. You just drop it off and you are done. And again, as one of the great things that I found between working at a company and doing my taxes myself is that you can save yourself a lot of money because companies do their taxes, how to best that, how it is best for them, not for you. Instead, well, you work in the way that I do. Well, your house is an expense. So there, you can put rent um, on there. You can put you know, electricity and any uh, software that you need to buy and all of this kind of stuff. And in the end, you know, I've actually found that I save more money uh, doing my taxes myself than when I was with a company. As long as you keep on top of that, you should be fine. Working in inbound tourism obviously has been a challenge lately, but in the past, do you have any experiences that you can share from working in that space? So when I worked for the OTA, the online travel agency, basically I was put in charge of starting up their English site for at first just Japan and then eventually other areas as well. And so there I sold activities. So like tours to Mount Fuji or dinners with Geisha and Maiko in Kyoto, that kind of thing. 
So since I did it in English, obviously it would be mainly to English speaking uh, audiences. So I had people from all over the place um, as long as they could read and book in English. And that was pretty cool. Um, saw lots of really interesting stuff and sort of got to literally start something from the ground up. So, you know, figure out how these things work, which was um, really rather a priceless type of experience. And also great for like SEO as well, because I would write everything. I wrote thousands of these things. And yeah, so learn about SEO. Okay. And then about AdWords. And suddenly I was in charge of marketing for it. And it's like, oh my God. Um, And sort of it kind of exploded from there. So that was good. Eventually I was in charge of marketing for all of APAC, basically. So half of the world. And that was neat. Uh, But yeah, so it was kind of very much for FIT. So travelers who organize stuff themselves can come here. And it's a pretty large group at this point. Uh, When I was then at the website, that again, I was editor-in-chief, so I oversaw actually five different languages, uh, despite not being able to speak the rest of them. And so there, it was more like getting information out and then working with prefectures and governments and the JNTO and things like that for various projects as well. So there, it could be everything from making a new website to, you know, boards that you will see in front of like sightseeing spots and things like that. So I took quite a bit of that. And then once I took a step back and decided to do this by myself, I started working much more directly with the various prefectures. So I currently work directly now with two and sort of more indirectly companies vaguely related to there's about three. And with that, it's often sort of, okay, let it, how should we promote these regions? Because what people in Japan want to go see in various regions of Japan and what people from outside are interested in is very different. And so consult about that, go around and see what there is, um, and then sort of go through and like, okay, let's update the website this way, or okay, these three spots are most likely to be were a place people will actually travel to. It will be worth going all the way to from Tokyo to this very far place to see this. And so kind of help them get an idea of what it is that people want and need, et cetera. And then also work with promotion things. So for tickets or special events or things like that, we'll also work on those. And I do, I still do a lot of content creation. So making sure that stuff pops up on Google in ways that it wants to be shown. Um, I'm moving away from this now, but I did a lot of social media um, because often Japanese prefectures on social media, the way they write just sounds like you're really uptight great aunt and it's not attractive. And so it's like, okay, let's change that and find these new things. And like, by the way, did you know that there is this thing called Instagram? Yes, it is the 21st century. Although at this point, Instagram is not as effective as it was before, et cetera. But this kind of, um, yeah, it's just kind of really all over the place at this point. So there, there was a lot of need for all of this expertise. And at the moment, obviously, it is less. Um, so I'm doing things that are different. So like sake instead, um, like getting people to understand sake and exporting sake to other countries. So, you know, once you've learned how to do it in one field, you can kind of take it to a whole bunch of other ones as well, which is useful at least in Japan, perhaps not in other places. That's great. So how do you go about discerning what 
will be appealing to foreigners or inbound travelers as opposed to what's more appealing to domestic travelers? Is it just based on what appeals to you? Do you do research in that area? Definitely. One big one though is, does it appeal to you, to me and to other sort of people that I trust, whose opinion I trust? That is the very first step. Like, even if it's just a slight glimmer of interest, like, hmm, it's like, that's like, okay, there might be something there. Um, the way that I then go about that is then, yes, research and also going to see the place. This is one of the big, big issues I had with a lot of these inbound tourism companies is that they would just look at things on paper and be like, oh, this is perfect. This is lovely. Yeah, this is going to be amazing. And then you go in person. It's like, oh, it's surrounded by factories. Ew. Nobody, people don't come to Japan to see that. It's like, yes, there's this cute little shrine on a thing and it's surrounded by things belching steam. Like, uh, yeah, no, no, we're not going to do that. So that is one of the kind of unique things that I offer. Basically, it's kind of a like a ninja tour. I go around. I don't tell anybody who I am. I go see all the various places. I move around by train or by bus or by bicycle or walk in the ways that people who are visiting will actually move because often these governments or prefectural governments will take you around by car. And it's like, well, but the visitors don't have cars. So it's really a conglomerate of different things of how easily is this place to access? How unique is it? How much does it tell about the story and culture and history of this particular region? Is it similar to other places that have also seen success? So, cause there are some, distinct types of places that no matter where they are, they are very attractive to foreign visitors. And so like try to find those as well. So it comes from all of this experience, market research, opinions, and then actually going there to see it myself. So another common trend that I noticed in what you were saying was the opportunities that having a high level in Japanese and more specifically in formal Japanese provided you. So how did you go about attaining that level in Japanese, not only enough to do well on standardized tests, but then to actually be able to communicate in a professional sense? Yeah. Standardized test wise, I'm not great. I will say I have JLPT2 and I just like, it's like, do you want to try one? Like, no, I don't, don't make me. No. Uh, so I haven't. Uh, but basically I started Japanese in my second year of college, which means I've been doing this for a while. And I will also preface, preface this by saying I'm good at languages. So um, that's an unfair advantage. I speak five. And so, you know, once you learn languages, the, the ability to do so sort of get starts becoming ingrained in your little gray matter. So there is that. So I will say Japanese has been tough, but you know, I've spent a lot of time on it and I spent a lot more time and was very lucky that my first Japanese professor really focused on speaking. Of course, we did writing and things like that, but she was like, as long as you can speak to some extent, you can get yourself in and out of situations. You can figure things out, which is there makes perfect sense. So there is that. I then, when I couldn't afford having Japanese classes, I watched endless amounts of drama online with the subtitles. And I found this very useful because it's how people actually speak. 
which is not how it happens in textbooks, particularly if anybody's used the Genki textbooks, which are terrible textbooks, but <laughs> nobody speaks like that. But listening again and again and again to people using phrases as they are normally used, they start getting ingrained. And so it's like, okay, this is how one uses it. Japanese tends to be very set. There's a lot of patterns. So again, as a musician, I, rec I recognize patterns. And so just using those again and again and stealing emails from other people for the writing part is how I got better. Um, I was very lucky when I worked for the travel agency that there were several um, customer service ladies who just had the most beautiful written Japanese I've ever seen. And like all of these emails got like shared because of how the company worked. And that was annoying because I had 6 million emails every day, but I could see their e emails. And every time I see something like, oh, that's really good. I would take it, copy, paste it, put it in a different little word file and then use it myself. And people are like, oh my goodness, your Japanese is so good. I'm like, ah, yeah, totally cheat, cheating my way through it. But uh, yeah, and um, but yeah kind of lessons and listening and just imitating other people and seeing what they do and just trying to do my best with that. And yeah, I mean, and time. <laughs> it's like my Japanese now is definitely a lot better than when I showed up <laughs> here in 2011. But yeah, it's, you can definitely do it. And it really does change um, how people perceive you a lot. And the worst, basically, how much money you can ask because if you don't speak Japanese, you're always going to be kind of limited. I definitely wouldn't have gone to a managerial level that quickly if I didn't speak proper Japanese, because once you get to that level, you have to go off by yourself to go talk to clients or apologize to clients or apologize to, I don't know, somebody else. There's always apologizing. There's so much apologizing. Yeah. So um, that's definitely made a big difference and in trust, especially now as a free when I work as a freelancer, it's like, if you can speak and act as a proper adult, <laughs> obviously they will treat you as a proper adult, that it does make a big difference and it takes a lot of work. But I do love that tip about stealing other people's emails oh, and just yeah. keeping a file. <laughs> I'll have yeah, to start like, doing that myself. It's fantastic. I, I still have it somewhere, actually. <laughs> just like Every once in a while, it's like, mm, all these little tricky double double negatives you need to meander your way through them so so then can you tell us a little bit about your experience working as a non-japanese woman in japanese workplaces and spaces you mentioned your japanese level being such an asset but have there been any other factors at play i think i've wrote i've also written about this quite a bit but being a non-japanese person in a Japanese workplace puts you in a rather different position because in general you will you can get away in a good way with some things that other people can't that people who are native Japanese cannot and this can especially for women right now in Japanese companies because there's it's it's a societal wide issue really it allows you to be more proactive and in a way aggressive than Japanese women could because they would get a lot of backlash for things. While in my case, it's just like, oh, well, she's foreign. That's It's expected that she's going to be a little bit 
wild uh, and crazy. And that can be a good thing. So I can put forth complaints and, you know, I won't face the same kind of shaming potential backlash or minimizing or if people do do that, then I just escalate, <laughs> which is something that, again, is, is I think more difficult for people who have grown up in Japanese society. Again, you have to be careful about this. You can't just, you know, the, the gaijin smash, I'm not for, you know, but sometimes you can use this otherness for good. And I have tried to do that as much as I can, both within companies and outside like that. But for um, other benefits, I don't know. It's I think people have found me more easy to talk to in a way. Uh, again, it's this otherness thing. So not don't quite count as a regular human being, which is fair. I don't think I am a regular human. I don't think there is a regular human being, but whatever. And um, yeah, so clients, it, like really tough, tricky clients would be less obnoxious to me than they might be to somebody who is a native Japanese person, just because it's like they, they don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> so that's helpful. And also bringing, you know, different perspectives can also help various companies and clients also understand why some of their customers were doing strange things that they thought were strange, but were normal for the customer and blah, 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 blah. So kind of having being able to bridge between things because of the high Japanese level, but also not being Japanese um, has been helpful. And I, I did have quite a lot of clients who I could did actually thanked me and like appreciated it. So that has been one of the positives, I think, um, sort of demystifying the two different worlds a little bit as much as I can. Yeah. Using your position in a more artful way rather than just, as you said, gaijin smashing on one hand or trying to fully assimilate in some way, even though it's impossible on the other, finding that balance. And you can get unique advantages for finding that balance as well. Definitely. And um, it one of the things you definitely can do in the... Um, asking for like higher pay or negotiating for a raise or a change or something like that is easier for me, I think, than it would be for other people. But by doing that, other people saw it and it also indirect, sometimes directly benefited other people. So it's like, you know, that's, it's good using that kind of the half American, like go get it kind of feeling has had, has had some benefits. (laughs) So Is there anything else that you would be able to touch on in terms of working in the entertainment industry as a foreigner in Japan? Were there any difficulties starting up or was it relatively straightforward for you in a sense because of your higher Japanese level? Well, it depends what you mean by entertainment because there's a whole series of levels here. There's like the talento people and there's their narrators and this, it all kind of varies depending on what exactly you're trying to do here. So I'd say that in general, a lot of the agencies specialized in sort of providing non-Japanese talent will speak English. And so that if you don't have great Japanese, then you don't have to worry about that too much. So that is, a, that is definitely a positive thing. These co- types of companies, however, do not offer visa assistance or everything, anything. So you already have to be here. 
And this is where a lot of people start having sort of a, the first obstacle, which is time. Because I can do this kind of thing because I work for myself and I have complete control basically over my own schedule. So that's something very important because these types of jobs are usually in the middle of the week uh, or at really strange hours. And if you have a full-time job, so you know, if even English teachers or something like that to keep your visa, it, it's going to make it harder because the number of jobs you will be able to take will be lower. So there is that. There's definitely a type that they are looking for. This is more specifically for like video and acting work. So if you are not that type, and it's pretty clear immediately when you watch any drama or these kind of things, what they're looking for. If you're not that type, and I am not, then TV work may be a little bit harder for you. And that's, again, that's not just a Japanese thing, though. It's uh, patriarchal BS. But anyway, so there's that. One does need to be careful because clients may try to take advantage of you not understanding things. So just be careful about that. And yeah, don't expect success overnight. I don't think anybody here has had really overnight success. They've put in time and lots of different appearances. I will say that the people who seem to have the most success are the ones who do also speak good Japanese. And this is for, you know, singers, narrators, actors, everything, because you'll be able to speak directly with the director or whoever's in charge. And that does make things a little bit easier for them as well. And it also allows you to go through the non-traditional route of agencies. So you can actually create your own network, which is the most important thing really. Um, and start to you know, get known. If one director worked with you once and liked working with them, they might call on you again for something else. Um, so that's definitely, no, being able to speak the language of where you live, no matter where you are is very important. But if you just kind of want to do little bits and pieces here or just start out and work on your Japanese as you go, you can certainly do that as well. It's one of the easiest, I think. So you see a lot of uh, spouses of people who've moved to Japan who start doing these kind of things as well, because it's one job that they can easily do. So then just moving on to a more lifestyle issue, what's it like living as a vegan in Japan? How has that been for you? <laughs> Well, it's gotten a lot easier, especially the past year. We've seen a huge shoot up in the number of vegan and plant-based options. Of course, there's there's a whole issue here of signage and plant-based things not necessarily being vegan. I will not go into that. But yeah, the SDGs thing, sort of sustainable development goals thing has made veganism a bit more trendy. So we're seeing like at Burger King, and Moss Burger and all of the like Cocos Curry, these big chains starting to add in, if not vegan, at least plant-based or mainly plant-based, at least vegetarian options. And that's been good. But when I started here like 10 years ago, it was a lot tougher. And that's actually why I ended up writing the Tokyo Vegan Guide because I had like a little Instagram account where it's like, oh, I found something and I forget things really quickly. So I would go there, eat the thing, and put it on the Instagram thing so that I can then remember. It's like, oh, I want to go eat something. Where, where can I go? And that was kind of successful. And then, yeah, I started writing the book because I kept on getting questions like, oh my God, I'm a vegan. I'm coming to Japan for like two weeks. Am I going to die? It's like, no, 
but here's some things you need to know. And I got sick of answering that. So I all just wrote it all out at once. Um, but at this point, there are so many vegan restaurants, especially in Tokyo, but other major cities as well, that I think my guide is actually now kind of obsolete. I can't keep track. There's like when I started, there were about 100 of these registered on Happy Cow, which is a vegan app. And now there's over 400 in Tokyo alone. And just more popping up here and there. It's become relatively common for me to go somewhere and just like look at a shop, a little food shop counter, and there would be like something vegan. I was like, oh, that's like, that's awesome. But yeah, it does. This is another one though, where it does really help if you can read Japanese, because often there are things hidden in, in products. And that's kind of the hardest thing to deal with if you can't speak Japanese or sorry, not, not only just speak, but read characters to be able to pick out the stuff hiding in there. But yeah, it's been pretty easy. It is the land of tofu, which is great. So it's a lot cheaper and a lot tastier than it is anywhere else in the world. Okay. Anywhere else outside of Asia. And so yeah, I don't personally have a big issue with it. Um, I do cook a lot, so that might help. And I obviously can read Japanese. But uh, yeah, I found it becoming easier and there's a greater understanding of it. And part of this is thanks to the inbound boom as well. And I, I see it continuing to increase. It seems to be, ha it has good momentum now. So that's, that's a win. Yay. <laughs> Yay. I hope that this trend continues too. I haven't been to Tokyo for a few years, so I'm excited to keep an eye out for that next time I'm there. Oh, yes. <laughs> so do you have any specific examples that might come to mind of communication breakdowns in Japan that you think may have been due to cultural differences? Well, one I can say in particular is when I started out this new freelancy life is that I would get quite a few emails. Like I made my website and everything from potential clients. And I was like, okay, I would just respond with pretty straightforward email. Like, oh, thank you very much. So here is my you know, my usual rate for this kind of thing. And here's a few other examples, blah, blah, blah. And then they'd be like, oh, okay, kentoshimasu, we'll think about it. And then I'd never hear from them again. And like, this happened about three times in a row. I was like, hmm, there's something wrong with that. So I thought about it. It's like, this is too direct. This is a very, I must say, American way of doing it. Boom, here's all the information. I thought that I was being helpful uh, by providing them everything all at once so that they could think about it. But for them, that was just like, oh my God, oh my God, uh, too much. So I switched to being like, oh, that sounds very interesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about the project? Can we meet? Because meeting here is very important. And so I'd go and meet them and would see each other and drink tea. And they know that I'm not an ax murderer. And then things are, the job started coming in. So it's like, you can't be overly direct. And even after years of living here, that was one that I got wrong and probably lost some income over, but you know, you live and learn. Yeah. So that is one way that communication here, you have to be quite careful. You really have to adapt as much as possible to the Japanese style, even if, especially for people coming from the US or the UK, where short messages are considered polite because you don't want to take up too much time and waffle on. Here you have to go through the whole, you know, blah, 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 kind of thing. Um, so yeah, just be careful of that. <laughs> Learn from my mistakes. Especially with email, I feel like it's easy to fall into those 
more obvious traps, just because if you're speaking with someone, you can get feedback from their body language. If you might be being a little bit too direct, if you might be doing something a little bit wrong or making them uncomfortable in some way, whereas with email, you don't get that (laughs) nonverbal feedback. So it's definitely great to know. Yeah, definitely. And aggressive, anything that seems a little too aggressive here is especially sadly coming from women one needs to be careful about. In general, communication here is very, very, you know, polite and highfalutin. So yeah, in any communication, just kind of, even if, you know, you feel very strongly about something and I feel very strongly about many things, just kind of like a few softening words before you go in for the kill can make all the difference. Wise words. Thank you. So if somebody was going to Japan for work, or to start a business, and they only had time to learn one thing about the country or the culture ahead of time, what would you prioritize for them? So connection with, if possible, a partner in Japan that can be trusted by potential clients. I think that's a big thing for like small companies or people coming by themselves or interested in starting a business. That first connection, which is the hardest, that's like the biggest hurdle. Once you get one, well, I'm the poster store, poster child for this. Once you get that one kind of reputable connection, you can then use that to expand your business. So I think that really working hard and finding that connection will be important, particularly if you do not speak great Japanese yourself, because a lot, I mean, it's English is still, I mean, it's definitely improved, but it's still, it's, it's Japan. The, The main language is Japanese. So no surprise. So just having that will reassure slightly more traditional clients um, and clients who don't speak English of your intentions and honorability and trustworthiness. So I think that would be my number one takeaway. All right. Well, great. Thank you so much for sharing your time today. Uh, It was great to hear a little bit more about your experience in Japan. And yeah, we touched on a lot of different things. So I'm sure that there are things. (laughs) So thank you so much. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Success Japan podcast. Be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode to learn more about Kiara and her work in Japan. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using and leave a rating and review if you enjoyed the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast financially, please check out the link to the new coffee page to keep me well caffeinated and making content. As always, feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interviews topics. I'd love to hear from you directly, so if you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find the link to do that in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo!